You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Here at Cross and Crown, uh, we believe that the Bible is God's word to his people. That means that when we are reading it, uh, we are hearing God speak. Our passage today is Isaiah 5, verses 1 to 30. I will sing about the one I love, a song about my loved one's vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He broke up soil, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it, and even dug out a winepress there. He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. So now, residents of Jerusalem and men of Judah, please judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I did? Why, when I expected a yield of good grapes, did it yield worthless grapes? Now I will tell you what I am about to do in my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it will be consumed. I will tear down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland. It will not be pruned or weeded. Thorns and briars will grow up. I will also give orders to the clouds that rain should not fall on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah the plant he delighted in. He expected justice, but saw injustice. He expected righteousness, but he heard cries of despair. Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there is no more room and you alone are left in the land. I heard the Lord of armies say, Indeed, many houses will become desolate, grand and lovely ones without inhabitants, for a ten-acre vineyard will yield only six gallons of wine and ten bushels of seed will yield only one bushel of grain. Woe to those who rise early in the morning in pursuit of beer, who linger into the evening inflamed by wine. At their feasts they have lyre, harp, tambourine, flute, and wine. They do not perceive the Lord's actions, and they do not see the work of his hands. Therefore, my people will go into exile because they lack knowledge. Her dignitaries are starving, and her masses are parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol enlarges its throat, and opens wide its enormous jaws, and down go Zion's dignitaries, her masses, her crowds, and those who celebrate in her. Humanity is brought low, each person is humbled, and haughty eyes are humbled. But the Lord of armies is exalted by his justice, and the holy God shows that he is holy through his righteousness. Lambs will graze as if in their own pastures, and resident aliens will eat among the ruins of the rich. 
Woe to those who drag iniquity with cords of deceit and pull sin along with cart ropes. To those who say, let him hurry up and do his work quickly so that we can see it. Let the plan of the Holy One of Israel take place so that we can know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who consider themselves wise and judge themselves clever. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine, who are champions at pouring beer, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of justice. Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes straw and as dry grass shrivels in the flame, so their roots will become like something rotten and their blossoms will blow away like dust, for they have rejected the instructions of the Lord of armies and they have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the Lord's anger burned against his people. He raised his hand against them and struck them. The mountains quaked, and their corpses were like garbage in the streets. In all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is still raised to strike. He raises a signal flag for the distant nations and whistles for them from the ends of the earth. Look how quickly and swiftly they come. None of them grows weary or stumbles. No one slumbers or sleeps. No belt is loosened, no sandal strap broken. Their arrows are sharpened and all their bows strung. Their horses' hooves are like flint. Their chariot wheels are like a whirlwind. Their roaring is like a lion's. They roar like young lions. They growl and seize their prey and carry it off and no one can rescue it. On that day, they will roar over it like the roaring of the sea. When one looks at the land, there will be darkness and distress. Light will be obscured by clouds. I want to ask you to just take a moment to turn to someone next to you. We've all had that moment, haven't we, when you've gone on holiday you travelled somewhere with great expectation. I know some of you have just come straight back from holiday, so good on you for being here. Um, when, you, when you're on a holiday, you go somewhere with a great expectation that something's going to be delightful, right? And then you get there, and it's just this total disappointment. I'm sure we've all had that experience at some point in our life. When we travel, we go somewhere with great expectations, but it's just disappointing, so I want you to take a moment to just think about a moment like that and share it with the person next to you. And I'll pull you guys back in one to two minutes. So something disappointing that you've seen on your travels that totally shattered you. So, Well, friends, why don't you bring it in? I wonder what that disappointing moment was for you. I just uh, spoke to some guys who uh, recently came back from Japan. Apparently, they set aside some time to go buy $150 per person steak. And when they arrived, it turned out it was $300 per stake, excluding the 10% surcharge. So, uh, I'm sure you've all had those moments. Um, I had a great holiday recently. Um, some of you will know that last month, I, I spent a week in the Barossa Valley with some uh, friends. And, and we went there and we stumbled across this little winery called Rockford. I don't know if you've been there to the Barossa or to Rockford, but it's, it's beautiful. Um, and, and it wasn't a disappointment. 
It wasn't, it, it delivered the goods. Uh, it produced this beautiful 2021 Alicante Boucher, and it was just really nice. A light red wine, similar to a Grenache, a bit less tannic, a bit more aromatic, hints of raspberry. It was delightful. <laughs> there, there are few things that are more delightful than a good wine. A delicate Alicante, a smooth Merlot, a, a tannic Sangiovese. Now, if you're worried why I know this much about it, don't worry, I did have to research most of it. But, but there are a few sites as well more delightful than a fruitful vineyard. If you've been to one, you'll notice it's actually quite beautiful when you go there. Red Hill Estate, Eden Valley, McLaren Vale. But I, 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 I wonder, what if I travelled all the way to the Barossa, only to find, instead of a beautiful vineyard, a barren wasteland? I imagine I arrived at Rockford with great expectation. I, I swirled, I smelled, I sipped that Alicante, and then only to taste something sour. Acidic, coarse. What a disappointment. You'd be, this isn't what the vineyard's meant to look like. And this isn't how a wine is meant to taste. Many of you will have the experience of going to a semi-fine dining restaurant, ordering a red, you'll order a Shiraz, which is the second, you'll order the second cheapest Shiraz on the menu, but the Shiraz is safe and you don't want to look too cheap. Uh, and then the man will come and pour and go, what do you think? And you'll drink it and you'll think it tastes awful, but... Yes, please more. Um, a vineyard is supposed to be a delight, but if, you, if that happened, it would just be a disappointment, wouldn't it? Have you ever wondered if that's how God might see us? What, what if we were meant to be a fruitful vineyard, but instead we're, we're just a barren wasteland? What, what if we were meant to be that ripe grape bursting with flavor? But instead, we're a rotten grape that turns out to be good for nothing. What, what if we were created to be God's delight? But instead, we're just a disappointment. I'd hate for that to be true. I don't know about you, that I, I, it brings me to tears to think that I would disappoint the God I love. And yet in Isaiah 5, what Matt just read for us, it's exactly what Judah has done. They were meant to be God's delight. But instead, they're, they're a divine disappointment. Judah, we've seen as a rebellious child, they have bloody hands. They have a proud heart. And today we're going to see that they have an unrighteous life or, or a self-indulgent life. And, and in this song, that's what we're looking at in Isaiah 5, a song, the prophet asked this, how are these people who are supposed to be God's delight such a disappointment? It all starts with this beautiful picture in verses 1 to 7 of a delightful vineyard. A delightful vineyard. You know, a few days um, after uh, stumbling across uh, Rockford, we visited another winery called Hentley Farm. Uh, it's supposed to be one of the uh, greatest wineries uh, in the Barossa. Henley Farm was established in 1997 by a couple called Keith and Alison Henschke. And a few years earlier, this is what Keith had done. He, he had consulted countless winemakers. He wanted to know the best place to plant a vineyard. And this is what he was told. Head northwest and look for the red-brown soil over limestone. 
So that's what he did. He, he took an old soil map from the 1950s and found what he believed would be the best plot of land, a farming property by, by the Greenwich Creek. And at great effort and at great expense, he planted, he found the best vines and planted them in the best soil. And, and you would expect then, right? He could expect them to yield the, the best grapes. And they did. Today, Hentley Farm produces some of the most bold and beautiful Shirazes you'll ever find. Just imagine after going to all that effort, Keith now looks across his vineyard and sees those fruitful vines, how much delight he would feel. They were everything he expected. In in verses 1 to 2, Isaiah, he, he sings about another vineyard owner. And just like Keith Henschke, this man goes to great effort and great expense to find the best place to plant the best vineyard. So just look at verses 1 and 2. He finds a very fertile hill. He breaks up the soil, clears its stones, and plants it with the finest vines. He builds a tower, digs out a wine press. You get the sense right. He cares so much for these vines that he gives them nothing but the best. The best soil type, the best moisture, the best temperature, the best altitude, the best sunlight exposure. Just like Keith Henschke, this this vineyard owner, he should be able to expect good grapes that will produce good wine. But when the harvest comes, what do you think he finds? He finds rotten grapes that are spoiled and sour, grapes that are useless and incapable of producing any wine at all. And your heart breaks. What what a disappointment. These grapes were nothing like what the man expected. So in verses 3 to 6, he he turns to the people of Judah, it's as if he turns to us, and, and he asks us, you tell me, what more? could I have done for my vineyard than I did? I gave these vines everything they needed to grow. But look at what they've become. They've produced grapes that are the the total opposite of what I expected. I would much rather that they didn't produce any fruit at all. But why do they give me these grapes? What what what, What am I to do with this? It's just so disappointing. So I'm going to remove its hedge. I'm going to tear down its wall. I'm going to uproot my vine, shut down the wine press, and make this vineyard into a wasteland. Because it hasn't yielded what it was meant to. It was meant to be my delight. But it's just a disappointment. Friends, can you see that? That is a picture of God's disappointment with Judah, his people. But it doesn't start with disappointment. No, in verse 7, the Lord actually delights in Judah. He loves them and he saved them with a purpose so that they might bear good grapes of justice and righteousness. But instead, Judah yielded worthless grapes, rotten grapes, grapes of injustice, grapes that are cries of despair. It yielded sin. It produced bloody hands. It cultivated a proud heart. It led to a reliance on anyone but God. 
You see, these aren't the good grapes that God expected them to yield. It's actually quite tragic when you think about it. Judah was meant to be God's delight. But they're just a disappointment. And God, God he's, he's beside himself. He's heartbroken. You can feel the anguish in that question, can't you? What more? What more could I have done for my vineyard than I did? I gave you everything you ever needed. I, I saved you out of Egypt. I gave you my law. I sent you my prophets, my priests, and my kings. But, but still, look at what you've become. So, judge, me, judge between me and my vineyard. Who, who do you think's wrong? What, what do you think I should do now? And just as that vineyard owner said he would remove his vines, I will tear down the walls of Jerusalem. I will send Assyria to sweep through Judah and Babylon to take my people away because just like that vineyard, they're good for nothing. Fellow Christian, can you see that God has saved us with a purpose? He redeemed us by the blood of His own Son, not only so that we might simply escape the fires of hell, good though that is, He saved us to be fruitful. He saved us to be His delight. He saved us to love us. He saved us so that we might live for something more. He saved you so that you might bear those good grapes of justice and righteousness. He saved us so that we might be pleasing to Him. God saved us to be His delight. Isn't that beautiful? God saved us to be His delight. You know, so often we think that sin is simply falling short of God's standard. Or maybe even worse, sin is breaking God's law. But I want to tell you that sin is actually so much more disappointing than that. Sin is a perversion of everything that we were saved to be. Remember, God saved us to be His delight. He saved to be the vineyard that He loves. And so when we persist in sin, can you see what we're doing? We're, we're breaking God's heart. We're rejecting His love. We're destroying His delight. If we are saved to be God's delight... Shouldn't our lives be a delight to Him? If we were saved to be God's delight, shouldn't our lives be, be a delight to Him? But, but you see, it gets even more deep than that. It's not just that we're God's delight. Isaiah shows us that He should be ours. Did you notice that weird thing in verse 1? Isaiah keeps referring to the vineyard owner as the one I love. Why? Over and over again, the one I love, my loved one. It's almost as if Isaiah, he's stepping back and watching this tragic scene play out before his eyes about someone he loves. We've all had that experience, haven't we? Someone you love and some, some, someone you love is going through something awful and terrible. Someone is doing something to the one we love and we just stand there and watch and, and our heart breaks. Isaiah loves God so much that when he sees what Judah is doing to God, Isaiah's own heart breaks. 
You see, sin is so tragic, not only because we are God's delight, sin is so tragic because He should be our delight. You see, if we delight in Him, if we love Him as we ought, how could we ever sin against Him? How could we ever break His heart? How could we ever grieve His soul? How could we ever disappoint the God we love? If we truly delight in Him, how could we ever delight in sin? That's Judah's great problem. It relies on itself more than God because it loves itself more than God. Friends, here's my question. You are God's delight. Is he yours? He clearly wasn't Judah's great love. Because if he was, that vineyard, it would have yielded good grapes of of justice and righteousness. But instead, now let's look at verses 8 to 25, it yielded rotten grapes. If if you've ever uh, left a bottle of red open for more than a few nights, you'll know that awful pungent smell of an over-oxidized wine. And a rotten grape is so much worse, because you can't even produce the wine to begin with. If a vineyard owner is walking through his vines and he sees a bunch of rotten grapes, what's he to do? He has no choice but to throw it out. I'd be so disappointed. And that's how Isaiah feels in these verses. Just look down at verse 8. You'll see that word woe, right? When you read the word woe, it's not an old school word for judgment or anger. It's an expression of sadness. It's an expression of disappointment. We don't have use that word woe anymore. We just say, ah, right? It's just heartbreaking. And Isaiah now wants us to see six woes. Six sins of Judah which disappoint their God. He wants us to see six rotten grapes. So we're going to speed through them now. What are those six rotten grapes? I want to introduce them to you. The first rotten grape is greed. Verses 8 to 10. Woe to those who add house to house and join field to field until there's no more room and you alone are left in the land. Do you see, the people of Judah, they're supposed to, when they own a strip of land, they're actually supposed to leave a strip of land at the side of their property for the poor to harvest their food. But these Judeans, they're not doing that. They're there maxing out their property and they're squeezing out the poor. They're there buying many houses. They're living in grand and lovely mansions. And they're investing for themselves that strip of land that would have otherwise been reserved for the poor. And God warns them, I'll empty out your mansions and I'll depress your return on investment. Stop your greed. The second rotten grape is pleasure. Verse 11, woe, maybe you can read it as woe, right? Woe, those who rise early in the morning in pursuit of beer, who linger into the evening inflamed by wine. These two days, they're pursuing pleasure all day long. It's always wine o'clock for them, right? And they spend their nights drinking at feasts where they have lyre, harp, tambourine, flute, and wine. Now, that might seem relatively tame to you, but I, I suspect it's the 8th century BC way of saying they're always at the club all night. 
house music, EDM. I don't know what any of these things actually mean. I just asked Vincent at 1am last night. (laughs) All the while, though, here's the great tragedy. They do not perceive the Lord's actions. They do not see the work of his hands. They're pursuing pleasure, but they just don't care about the things of God. They're so taken by this world that gospel concerns are so far from their hearts. They don't live for God's glory. They live for their own pleasure. The third rotten grape is arrogance. Verses 18 to 19. Whoa! To those who drag iniquity with cords of deceit and pull sin along with cart roads. Don't you love that phrase that we Christians use? We're euphemistic. We we like to avoid saying, I'm sinning. So we say, I fell into sin or, you know, I accidentally. But these Judeans, they're not accidentally falling into sin. They're intentionally pulling sin to themselves. And, And they're so brazen, right? Arrogant to even dare God to judge them. Let him hurry up and do his work quickly so that we can see it. Now, these Judeans know exactly what they're doing, and they do it anyway. Their consciences are seared by their arrogance. The fourth rotten grape, immorality, immorality. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. I, I think this is one of the worst of them all. It's total moral inversion. The total reverse of all that is good and bad. It's almost like someone coming along, drinking an expensive bottle of wine and saying, it's cheap. Or someone then taking a $5 bottle from Aldi and saying, Penfold's grain, which is overrated anyway. It'd be funny if it wasn't so tragic. You see, I think actually this fourth rotten grape justifies every other sin. Because it redefines evil as good, darkness as light, bitterness as sweet. It is immorality writ large. The fifth rotten grape is pride. Uh, Verse 21, woe to those who consider themselves wise and judge themselves clever. Here's the worst part, right? All these guys are engaging in property and pleasure, chasing these two things, and they think they're so smart. They think, I've figured it out how to to have it all. God and the world. It's like Peter Adam once said, the Lord Jesus says you cannot serve both God and money. And we say, I'll prove him wrong. Their sin is their pride. And the sixth rotten grape is selfishness. Verses 22 to 23. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine who are champions at pouring beer, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of justice. I mean, this is, this is tragic. These, these guys, they should be heroes for God and country. But they're just heroes for themselves. And you begin to wonder, what kind of hero is that? And while they're so heroically living for their own pleasure, they're totally disregarding the very people who need a hero. They're driven by pure selfishness. There they are. There's the bunch of rotten grapes, as it were, with six grapes on them. Greed, pleasure, arrogance, immorality, pride, and selfishness. 
And I think you can actually take these six rotten grapes and sum them up in one simple and yet tragic word. Self-indulgence. Self-indulgence. Instead of loving God like Isaiah does in verse 1, we love ourselves. Instead of making God our delight, we make ourselves our own delight. Self-indulgence is to live for our own pleasure. I actually think that this is one of the great challenges that Christians face going forward. In a previous generation, uh, particularly if you're young here, in a previous generation, our parents, they didn't have time for self-indulgence. They had, to, they had to study, they had to work, they had to fight to survive. It was a matter of self-reliance. But now this younger generation in, in, in Melbourne, we, we, we have it all. We don't have to work as hard for life to be good. If self-reliance was one of the great sins of a previous generation, I wonder whether self-indulgence might be ours. But they're linked. They're linked because beneath that self-indulgence lies that even deeper sin. In verse 24, they've rejected the instruction of the Lord of armies. They've despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. You see, it's just like we've seen over the last few weeks. Beneath the rotten fruit of self-indulgence is the rotten root of self-reliance. Pride looks like self-reliance, but it also looks like self-indulgence. Because if I rely on myself, well, I'm going to live for myself. How do you feel? as we looked at those six rotten grapes. I have to admit, I actually feel pretty uncomfortable. Because on some level, if we're honest, many of us, including us Christians, don't just produce these rotten grapes. I actually think we cultivate them. Just like Judah, many of our lives are so tempted to revolve around those two Ps of pleasure and property. They actually define the life narrative that many of us occupy. In our early 20s, we go drinking and clubbing to chase that thrill and get that high. In our late 20s, we then class up a little bit. We have a bit more money, so we go to exclusive bars and fine dining, and we travel the world to find ourselves in London, Rome, and Barcelona. In our 30s, we go, okay, I'm going to grow up now. I'm going to stop the pleasure train. I'm going to settle down. I'm going to take the money I spent on pleasure and I'm going to put it into property. But not just any property. But it's like Judah, it's not enough to have a roof over our heads and a home for our families. No, we need the big, beautiful, forever home in a premium suburb with many rooms. And then in our 40s and 50s, we, we then go, well, actually, I have more money and, and I'm going to purchase multiple investment properties to grow my wealth and then buy pleasure for my children. And then into our 60s and 70s, it's easy to become grey nomads who travel the world and, and cruise to the end. Now, now, don't mishear me. I'm not saying these things are inherently bad. A home and holidays, they're good gifts of God. Enjoy them. Receive them with thanksgiving. But can you see that if we're not careful, this entire lifestyle narrative can really just be pure self-indulgence that the primary motivation that drives our every decision is 
What will make me happy? And life may be, that life, it may be a short-term delight to us. But it will be a disappointment to God. Because he saved us for so much more. He planted us not to yield grapes of pleasure and property, but of justice and righteousness. That's what will bring him true delight. And that's what will bring us true delight as well. How can you know though, right? You might sit there and go, well, Adam, I do a lot of those things and I do a lot of those things. How can I know if I'm fairly, simply, rightly enjoying God's gifts or if I'm wrongly pursuing personal pleasure? How do I know? How do I test my heart? Let me ask, how much do you care about the things of God? How much do you care about the things of God? How much do gospel concerns decide how you spend your time and your money? Because that was Judah's problem. Remember, it did not perceive the Lord's actions and it did not see the work of his hands. They were so preoccupied by their pleasure that they lost sight of God's glory. So are you driven by these gospel convictions that that heaven and hell are real, that the time is short and that Jesus is returning? Are you consumed by the reality that this world is destined for judgment without Jesus? Are you gripped by the urgent need for the gospel to be preached to the ends of the earth? Whatever Whatever work might be your occupation, is God's work your preoccupation? Or are you simply thinking about where to take the next holiday? Who next to have brunch with? What next to post on Instagram? Because if we care about our own worldly pleasure more than God's saving purposes, we're not bearing the good grace of justice and righteousness that God saved us to bear. And so in verses 26 to 30, Isaiah gives this warning. If Judah continues to bear bad fruit, the delightful vineyard will become a thorny wasteland. It is a tragic sight when you think about it. A vineyard which should be as beautiful as the Barossa is actually as dead as the desert. But that's the picture in these verses because when God sees these rotten grapes, He says, I've got no choice. What what more could I have done? I have to remove the vine. In verse 24, he'll burn up the vineyard with the fire of his anger as Assyria sweeps through the land of Judah. Back in verse 13, he'll send his people into exile at the hands of Babylon two centuries later. In verse 15, he'll humble the proud for their self-indulgence. In verse 16, he'll exalt himself as the God who cares about justice and righteousness. In verses 26 to 28, his judgment will come upon his people quickly and swiftly, like the Assyrian army that's already marching for war. And in verses 29 to 30, his judgment will be as terrifying as a roaring lion, as overwhelming as the breakers of the sea. You see, this is a dark song. It's a heavy song. 
And its lyrics tell this story, that God will judge His people for their unrighteousness. God will judge His people for their unrighteousness. If you're not a Christian, it's always a great week to be here. And all this talk about judgment might make you think, gosh, this God seems just so unloving. But, but can you zoom out and see that, that just like that vineyard owner, God actually loves us? God delights in us? God has done everything to show His love for us? Gosh, Romans 8.32 says, He did not even spare His own Son, but offered Him up for us all. If God has even given us Jesus to die in our place as an expression of His love, then the question of Isaiah 5 still stands. What more? What more could I have done for my vineyard than I did? If Jesus is not enough, what more do you expect God to do? Now, if you're not a Christian, I want you to know this. Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. Jesus is the ultimate sign that God loves you. He is all that we need. If you want a greater, if you want a greater sign than Jesus himself of God's love, there isn't one. The, the greatest symbol of love is not even a vine, it's a cross. God says, I've given you everything. I've given you my son. So the ball's now in your court. What will you do? Will you turn to him? Will you love him as he loves you? But I want you to notice, friends, that this chapter is actually not about God's judgment against the world. It's actually about God's judgment against his people. And this is where it gets really uncomfortable, because I actually think a lot of Christians, we think like this, right? If Jesus was judged in our place, then why are we still talking about judgment for us? Right? If Jesus died on the cross, bore God's wrath in our place, I guess we're free from condemnation. So Adam, let's stop talking about judgment. We should be talking about freedom and forgiveness. And in one sense, that's true. Jesus was judged in our place. We don't need to live in fear. We can and we should live in the freedom of our forgiveness. But I wonder if you knew that actually, though our, judge, though our ultimate judgment has been removed, there are still two lesser judgments that every Christian will face. There are actually still two lesser judgments that every Christian will face. Firstly, we will face God's judgment in this world. 1 Peter 4 says, The time has come for judgment to begin with the household of God. Well, what does that mean? Do you realize in this life, God still judges His people? He afflicts us with suffering so that He might remove our rotten grapes. He afflicts us with gracious judgments to warn us of the greater judgment to come. He sends us what we might call severe mercies. They're severe, for they are hard. But they are mercies, for they actually force our reliance off ourselves and onto Him. 
It's a hard truth, but sometimes the only way we'll kill greed is to lose everything. Sometimes the only way to kill pride is to be humble. Sometimes the only way to realize the vanity of pleasure is to feel the reality of pain. It is not possible, and let me be clear, it is not possible as Christians to say, this particular example and instance of suffering is because of this particular reason. Don't let someone come to you in your sickness or tragedy and say, you are suffering because X, Y, Z definitively. We we just can't know that. But the Bible at least puts this on the table as a question. The lost job, the failed relationship, the physical sickness, maybe. Might they be God's gracious judgment, His severe mercy to call us back to Him? To, to wean us off a reliance on the world and to cause us to cast our cares upon Him. We will face God's judgment in this world. Secondly, we Christians will still face God's judgment in the world to come. 2 Corinthians 5.10 for, for we must all, all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be repaid for what is done in the body, whether good or evil. You see, as Christians, it's true, we are saved from the ultimate judgment. We have the confidence that we're entering the kingdom of God. We are not going to suffer the fires of hell. But all of us will still have to give an account for the lives we've lived, for the greats we've produced, whether good or bad. It won't decide heaven or hell, but it still matters. It will decide God's delight or His disappointment. In 1 Corinthians 3, we read of a man who's genuinely saved, but here's the line, only as through fire. And you're thinking, oh gosh, I don't want that to be me. All the work, all the fruit of his life is burned up in the final judgment. Now, he himself, praise God, gets past the gates of heaven, but it's as if his hair is singed by the fires of hell. He will stand before God justified, saved, righteous, but maybe not on it. Maybe not on it. And so can I say, it comes back to actually that question of love. If I don't love God, I'm not going to care about any of this. I just want to get into heaven. But if I love the Lord, if He is my delight, even if I'm found to be safe in Jesus and accepted into the kingdom, I don't want that to be me. I don't want to disappoint the God I love. No, I want to be able to stand there on that last day, stand before my God, look back at my life and see that I have been God's delight and He has been mine. Wouldn't that be wonderful? To stand before God and say, I have been God's delight and He has been mine. On that uh, trip to the Barossa, some of us were sitting around at night time watching a movie. And my, one of my friends there told me, he said, my life, here's my life goal, here's my goal in life. And you know when someone says that, you should pay attention to listen, right? He goes, I want to stand before God on that last day and say, I didn't waste this life. I just want to hear him say those words, well done, good and faithful servant. You see, friends, there is a man who lives in light of the coming judgment. 
And that judgment doesn't make him terrified of God or unsure of his salvation. When he thinks of the judgment, it actually makes him love the Lord. Because he can think of nothing worse than to disappoint the God he loves. You see, friends, if we love the Lord like my friend does, more importantly, if we love the Lord like Isaiah does, why would we ever bear rotten fruit? Why would we ever want to disappoint the God we love? How could we not bear the good grapes of justice and righteousness? How could we not seek to be the vineyard of His delight? Can I pray? Loving God and Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have saved us in love. That You've saved us to be Your delight. And God, we are so sorry for all those times that we have borne rotten grapes. That we have lived for self and sensuality, that we have lived for pleasure and property, that we have lived for what will make us happy rather than what will bring you glory. We are so sorry, God, for all the times that we have lived for our own pleasure rather than the pleasures of God. Thank you that in Jesus you've forgiven us. Thank you that Jesus has taken our judgment. Thank you, God, that we have been forgiven ransomed, healed, and restored. And help us now, God, to live a life that will please you, a life that will bear good fruit, a life, God, that will bring you pleasure, joy, and delight. For you are a holy God, and your holiness is shown in your righteousness. And we pray these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.